Hi, my name is Wale Emmanuel, and you're welcome to a new episode of In These Moments. I always come across different people and different stories, sometimes intentionally and sometimes they just kind of like land on my lap. Sometime last year, I came across G-Day on Clubhouse, I believe. The conversation was after my trip to New Orleans and I had a random thought and I was wondering if there was a Nigerian community in New Orleans. And G-Day had mentioned that he lived in Louisiana at some point, mentioned some of the interesting experiences that he's had. I think my favorite thing about talking to G-Day is you just realize how different we could be as Nigerians. I mean, putting Nigerians or Africans in general into this one box is not, sometimes it's, it's kind of silly because people are very different. People are very varied. And um, yeah, this this talk with G-Day exemplifies a lot of that. After a few months talking and, you know, planning to do it, I met G-Day in October last year um, in Houston. We sat down to have this this um, conversation in the hotel room. Um, he came over with a bottle of Hennessy. We sat down and talked about a lot of his experiences. Funny enough, I was in Houston for the Whiskey show uh, while I was on tour in October. I interviewed Jide the day before. And turns out Jide was one of the organizers. He was one of the people who brought Whiskey to, to Houston. So that was very funny. I didn't know that beforehand. But we, we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And um, without further ado, Let's get into Jide's story. I grew up in the Ogba area for like the first earliest memories. And then we moved to Magodo. And most of my memories of Nigeria are living in Magodo um, before I moved here in 2005. Went to primary school, went to secondary school in Lagos. Shout out to F4 Secondary School Ikeja. Yeah, th- that was really my childhood memory starting from there. I guess we had our own community. So my mom and all her siblings, we all lived in the same estate. And so it was literally myself and my siblings. I have two, um, a brother and a sister, and then all my cousins. We all went to the same schools. And then we'd have the driver pick up all of us at the same time and take us to my grandma's house and drop us off until the individual parents came to come pick it pick up their own children right so i grew up um for the longest time i was the only boy and i had six girls so between all my cousins until my brother was born and so early childhood was me around all the girls for the most part which was interesting uh because it definitely then led to a different perspective because i wasn't treated any different than the girls you know how boys are like when they're growing up oh you know boys don't do anything in the kitchen and nah none of that shit happened it was like you guys are all doing all this together and you're all going to be treated the same and equally and so that was really early childhood so i would say that for large portions of secondary school i don't actually remember i think there's there's a lot of trauma that was in there that is just mentally blocked out like i can't tell you anything that happened in my gss2 at all don't remember it. GSS3 may be the end because we had to write Junior Wyatt. That's the only reason that I remember. That was the only thing that was memorable. GSS1 I remember um, because a really shitty experience. At the time, I didn't realize how bad my eyesight was and that I needed glasses. And 
I always tried to sit in front of the class just so I could see better. And I got into this position where if I couldn't sit at the front of the class and then I'm not able to see, I have to copy off someone else's note. And kids are fucking assholes, um, especially at that age. So I remember like a lot of like the person I used to sit next to because we used to sit in a two by twos right on the benches. And he'd be like, oh, I can't let you copy my note. And I'm like, guy, don't be, don't be a fucking asshole, right? And so uh, for like almost the whole term, I had to deal with all of that. And so just as one was very traumatic. Like I said, it is what it is. You make it through, you it's life, right? And you get resilient and then you build. And then you go into senior school, which is like on the other half, and then life starts to really change, right? And then that's the formative years. And like my, my father used to say, it's like, oh, just look at all his report cards. And you can tell when he finally met girls. And that was usually like SS1, right? And so that was like the first real experience of, okay, now I'm starting to, to see the other side of life. So after Junior Wayak, right, there's this like long gap of time between that and when you start SS1. And I think we went to summer school. And so at summer school, obviously, you're meeting different people. And so I went to summer school in Magodo there. There was a school there that we went to because it was close. And so that was my first true experience with other people outside of, you know, people I went to school at Air Force because I'd been there for three years already. And so that was the first time of really meeting people and being like, oh, okay, you know, there's a little shoddy over there that you know, it's not looking too bad. And then because we all live close to each other and so you know we'd go play basketball and then the girls would come and watch and so you know that's the time you want to show your skills and you want to you want to start you know being the michael jordan on the on, on the court and all that but yeah no so i remember the first girl that i had a true crush on it was also the time when you know you know naito you pay your money for the phone and hopefully somebody doesn't use all the minutes that's the other part that caused friction was trying to talk on the phone right because you pay as you go and so my dad would like pick up the phone and it's like what do you mean they used all the money on the phone right and we used to have a multi-links phone like i remember and we always used to have to buy on it and every time he picked up the phone to use it there was never any money on it right and he's against so mad it's like i'm buying spending all this money and you people are just what are you doing with this and then and then yeah and she had the same problem too because she would call and then i would call and then eventually our parents met which was an interesting conversation because uh they met at a party of a mutual and so they were talking and they're like oh so it's your son that's always disturbing my daughter and it's like oh shit here we go right so fun times and so i think that was where the focus was right trying to stay up at night to to do you know precocs at night and and all that type of stuff and so yeah after that it was really more like a we need to get back in the game right So I moved after secondary school. So I, I, I moved after WIAC, really, because I did WIAC and then NECO. And then I had already taken the SATs in my SS3 year. So I kind of knew what I was doing and where I was going. And and so right after the WIAC results came out, I was like, I'm out. That in itself was a, was a bit of a culture shock, right? Because, you know, coming out of secondary school, still trying to figure out, you know, then it was just, oh, we just want to party. We just want to go to 11.45. We just want to you know hang out and it's like oh man you need to go into like what do you want to actually do in the future right so i kind of always knew i wanted to do engineering um my mentor at the time did engineering so i had this pathway completely aligned of what i wanted to do and how i wanted it to go and all that so so yeah i moved here in 2005 and I, and I went to college in louisiana so my landing place was houston which is which has been home so i have family in houston i've, had, I've always had family in houston and so, yeah, so coming to Houston and then driving out to the middle of nowhere, Louisiana, which is like about a five and a half hour drive, uh, was also interesting because 
you think you're coming to America, right? And then you come to a big city like Houston. And you're like, okay, this is America, right? And then you get transported into like the middle of Louisiana where the biggest city away from us was an hour drive. And that was like the really the biggest airport. And the next closest one was like a really tiny airport and it was like a 45 minute drive. Nobody had cars then, like in terms of like just all of us coming, right? So it was me and my cousins. There was a bunch of people that went to school together, but my cousins were there already. So it made the transition a little bit easier, I guess. Then we only had one Walmart. They only had one movie theater. The city of Ruston is really a split between the university and then the rest of Ruston. And so it had a population of about 10,000 people. Ruston, Louisiana. 5,000 of that was like the university and then 5,000 was everybody else. It was weird because there's nothing to do, right? It's like you come from Houston where, you know, big city, this is nothing to do. But my parents loved it, right? Because it's like, all you can do is just sit here and focus on your books and hopefully you don't chase girls too much and you can still, you know, pay attention to what needs to do. But it was also one of the better experiences that I had, right? Because at that time, you know, I formed some very long, lifelong friends until today that we're still there that was when i joined my fraternity and made some lifelong brotherhoods that you know we still we still made so there was a lot of good experiences there being in louisiana but would i do the same to my child and put her in the middle of nowhere Eh, the jury's still out on that one ruston itself was kind of split but five minutes down the road we had a historically black college Grambling State University. And so what it was is you have this black university that's five minutes down the street, and then you have Louisiana Tech, which is a predominantly white institution, right? And so it wasn't like there wasn't a mix of people in the environment, but at school itself, it was definitely predominantly white, right? So a lot of the black people that were there were few and far in between, if you put it that way, especially depending on the programs that you're going into as you, as you start to advance, yeah, it starts to thin out quite a bit. But we always had Grambling State University next to us, so we could always get our fix of black life by just driving down the street to, to hang out with them and homecoming and stuff like that. But at our university, it was, it was mostly white. I think there was an intentionality with the university to recruit a lot of international students. And what was happening was there was a lot of Indians. There was also a lot of Nigerians and Cameroonians. Well, mostly Nigerians, to be honest, because tech had a really good engineering program. And so the draw was always, let's go out, let's get international students. And, you know, because we have this really good engineering program. Now, if you know anything about Louisiana, there's really like one other school in Louisiana, which is LSU. Everybody who doesn't go to LSU kind of finds their way into one of these other schools, right? At least for the state schools. For us, it was just my cousins went there, we got there and we had friends and then we met other people that came and they were all, you know, doing engineering, accounting and whatever it was. And we had a little community of our own. Grambling, they had a a good community of Cameroonians um, because their coach at the time, I believe their soccer coach was a Cameroonian. So he did a job of trying to recruit a lot of Cameroonians. And so all the Cameroonians would go to like the HBCUs and all the Nigerians would go to tech. And so we we actually had, I think when I was there, we probably had over 50 Nigerians that were there in this little town in middle of nowhere, Louisiana. But it definitely started to expand and grow. And I know they still have a thriving community there. GD talks about his first experience with racism in America. So my first true experience of racism was when I was playing rugby. So we were going down to New Orleans to play in a tournament. And so we're on the bus, we're all going. And if you know anything about the way Louisiana is, it's shaped like an L. To get to New Orleans from our school, you had to drive like east 
and go into Mississippi and then drive down south and you would come into New Orleans from the top. So that's just kind of how it worked. And I remember us doing the drive. We stopped at some town. This is in the middle of the night somewhere in Mississippi. I don't know. And so we're on the bus. There's two black people on the bus. One of them is, is mixed, right? And then there's me. And we're the only two black people on the whole team on the bus. And I remember we're getting down from the bus. I'm sitting at the back. So I'm one of the last to come out. And then so we come out, we're stretching. And then I just remember my coach running out of the gas station going, everybody get back on the fucking bus now. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, get on the bus now. And then I see these dudes that are like walking aggressively towards us with shotguns. And I'm like, oh shit, yes, by the way, we are in Mississippi. I kind of forgot where we were. And so we get on the bus and we just haul ass and get out of there. And that was the first time I really went, okay, we're in America now. And then when you start to realize that, look, at the end of the day, they don't see you any different, right? Because you speak with an accent, right? Because before they ever hear your accent, you're a black dude. If you ever heard anything about East Texas, East Texas is one of the most dangerous, and I say dangerous in the sense of like openly racist type people that you ever run across. But to get to our college, right, you have to drive from Houston through East Texas into Louisiana. And I remember we're heading back to school what we always did was we always carpooled going to school and back, right? So we'd go in at least two, three cars, just safety in numbers. We're all coming to Houston to have a good time. And then we're going back to school. So we'd all drive together in packs. I remember we we're going back. It was probably one of the times that we left a little later at night. And one of the cars got pulled over. And I remember it was my best friend and his roommate at the time. And then one of my other friends that were in that car and they got pulled over. And obviously we had to stop and wait for them right up front. But this was in the middle of winter and these cops had them sitting out on the side of the road, no jacket on. They couldn't even put their hands in their pockets, searching for quote unquote drugs. And, and the reality of it is that these are young black men and they're not small dudes, right? They're big guys, big chest. And they're driving this car with tins, with tinted windows. And all they have in their trunk, right, is like food stuff. Yet there was like 12 squad cars plus a canine unit just there right searching the entire car and they're sitting down and i remember my best friend ike always says he's like he was shivering and like he wanted to put his hands in his pocket and dude is like don't you fucking put your hands don't you fucking move right and he's like fuck right like let's go the dog starts to cough and they're like yeah because we have fucking ground pepper in the truck because they've come to do a haul from the African store, right? But I remember being like fucking terrified, right? Because I'm like, if anything happens, back then, this is like 2007, 2000, yeah, 2007. We don't have like camera phones. We're not recording. There's none of this other shit, right? And it's like, if anything happens to these dudes, nobody's going to know, first of all, because they're in the middle of fucking nowhere. All they had to say was they reached for something and that would have been the end of it. And it was that simple. And... I remember talking to my fraternity brothers and saying, hey, this is what this guy went through, right? Is this something that is normal? And they're just like, oh yeah, all the time, right? It's like, you know that when you're in East Texas, you drive exactly at the fucking speed limit. You don't go over, you don't go under, you drive at exactly, if it's 45, you stay at 45 and you hope to God that you get out of there without interacting. And then it turns out there was a whole like news report on this. And there's a particular city, Tanaha, where 
what they would do is they had this asset for features laws or whatever and the cops will pull you over they could seize everything that you had on you and you couldn't sue them to get it back right and it was really goofy and weird they basically say oh we suspect you of running drugs or whatever it is and they could seize all your shit and you couldn't do anything about it and it actually was something that was on news and it was like actually a really big deal and they've been doing this for years and the excuse was like oh you know this is like a drug channel right from houston to atlanta or something like that but you only pull over the black people this whole asset for future thing you never heard it happen to any white people in my entire five years at tech i never heard a white person have this experience i know a lot of black people that had the experience and so to that i started thinking like you know man this racism thing right maybe it's not as surface as we think it is right it's a lot more systemic and stuff and so yeah that was always my experience and it's funny when i started working um, I remember having a conversation with just my engineering group and I had another black engineer on the team and we were just having, we were just shooting the shit as, as a whole group. And someone had made the comment, right, about East Texas. And I was like, oh, I don't stop in East Texas, right? I will never stop in East Texas. And he's like, oh yeah, absolutely not. And he's like, this is his experience in that same place. And it was odd because we had the exact same experience and nobody else on our team could relate. Right. And so when you start to see from that lens, it's like, we're in a fucking entirely different world than these people are. Right. I got my first undergraduate degree in 2009 in industrial engineering. And then I stayed for another two quarters um, to get my mechanical engineering degree. So I left in 2010, May, and then I moved back to Houston. And so one of the things at the time was because we did a lot of parties in Louisiana at the time, that was literally our thing. We started to throw parties in Houston. And eventually, we ended up forming a company. Myself, my cousin, who's now late, my best friend, Ike, and one of our other friends, from sure. And we ended up coming together. And we went from throwing house parties in Houston to setting up one of the, I will say this, I'm going to brag with my boys, the premier entertainment group when it comes to Nigerian events and stuff in Houston called Shekman Nights Entertainment. SKE is what it is now. And so we started that out. And I would say that that was the evolution of changing the Nigerian entertainment scene in Houston, right? I don't know if you've actually realized this, but the concert that's happening tomorrow with Kid powered by SKE. So I'm just I'm just going to drop that one there. I'm not I'm not going to shout it too much. I'm not going to loud it too much, but you know, it, it is what it is, right? And and I will tell you that we're one of the few people that actually have a day dedicated to us in the city of Houston by the city of Houston, right? So we have a Shepherd Nights day. I'm not going to brag, but humble brag brag. But yeah, my boys are lit. So that's how we started, and that was really my first like dive into entrepreneurship. Um, at, at that point. So I was the chief operations officer at that time. And so we did everything from concerts, comedy shows, regular nights at the clubs, whatever. Right? We did it all. And we're still here going strong. When I came back, it was more like, okay, now you graduated college. What the hell are you going to do? Right. So started working with Shekwinites. Um, we're building that at the time. Um, I had a a different business at the time. I used to buy cars and try to fix up and then send to Nigeria and sell and all sort of stuff. Yeah, it was very brief. It didn't last very long. It wasn't really sustainable at the time, right? It's like you're going to the auctions, you're trying to bid against people that do this day in, day out. It's like, how much money can you really afford to throw to it? And at the time, I was really looking for a full-time job. And so it was like, I was trying to make the decision, do I move from here and go to Canada and go to my master's in Canada at the time? Or do I stay in the US and try to figure something out? 
I eventually was able to get a job. And my job is what actually moved me from Houston the first time. My career, my whole career was I always wanted to work in the oil field. Always wanted to work in oil and gas. So Exxon, Chevron, whatever it is, right? Um, That's what I wanted to do. And so when I got the opportunity was to join Baker Hughes, which is an oil and gas service company. I was like, yes, let's do it, right? And they're like, oh, by the way, the job is in Casper, Wyoming. Where the fuck is Casper, Wyoming? Can someone get a map? Because I have no idea where the fuck it is, but we're going to do this, right? And that was an experience in of itself. Okay, so Wyoming is like, it's just one of these places where you never really expect, but it's very much like Texas, right? So there's two things in Wyoming. There's oil and then there's cows, right? So either a cowboy or you work on the oil field, which is really basically like all of Texas, right? And so it's like the Texas of the north, just with a lot more shitty weather. And so being north in the Rockies, closest big city to us was Denver. And that was a six hour drive. And so I remember flying into Casper and I flew into Denver first. I flew into Salt Lake first and then took a small plane from Salt Lake to Casper. And I remember landing. And as we're coming down the runway, I'm like, is that fucking deer like on the side of the runway? And I shit you not, like in our airport in Casper, we had like just like a herd of like antelope and deer that just lived there. Always there were. So when you're coming down, you could always see these stupid things all over the place. And I'm like, huh, what the fuck did I get myself into, right? But I will say that that was probably one of the, the best experiences that I ever had because it definitely took me out of a comfort zone and put me in a place where... You think Louisiana was bad in terms of like the the race mix? Wyoming was, for context, right? There's like half a million people in the entire state of Wyoming. I have more than half a million people that live in my subdivision here in Houston, right? And so that's the entire state. And so in the city that we lived in, right? I live, it's called Casper. And it's the second largest city. Total population was, I think, around 52,000 people. And most of the people that there, again, were either cowboys or they worked in the oil field. And surprisingly enough, guess what? There were still Nigerians there. <laughs> and so so when I started, I was the only black person at my job, for sure, at least for the first year. And then I had another gentleman who joined, but he was one of our field techs and really good friend of mine. We definitely became family because it was just the two of us, right? At least within my division. Yeah, but I stood up there for about three years before moving back to Houston. The first year, year and a half, it was actually challenging, right? Because I was mostly working. So I was mostly out on the rigs, mostly out, you know, driving around. So I wasn't necessarily like at home at home. The first time I went to Baba Shop in Wyoming, and I was like, oh, I wanted to get a haircut. And this brother brought out scissors. I was like, there's absolutely no way that I'm going to be doing this year. So I can you know, I will not cut my hair in Wyoming. I will wait until I had a reason to come back to Houston or a formal reason to come back to Houston to get my hair cut. I didn't care if it was three months. I didn't care. I'm like, you guys are not touching my fucking hair. Because if you bring out scissors, then I know you clearly don't know what the fuck you're doing. So we're not even going to try this shit here, right? But luckily, like, because my my company is headquartered in Houston, so they had a lot of training classes. There were a lot of things that like that. So I always try to kind of mix it in properly, right? And then the other days that I can go, I just go to California until my girlfriend and my, well, my wife now eventually um, moved from California to Casper to join us. And then and then we stayed there for, for a while. And, and so the, the loneliness, I didn't give it a chance to build as, as it could have, right? Because um, 
especially up north where there's not a lot of people that look like you and there's very few things that are relatable. Yeah, that was one of those things that you had to be intentional about. I made a family there so that there was always someone to hang out with, hang out where, so you didn't feel bad. But I left every every chance I got there. I can tell you the number of people that would actually come to visit us while we were in Wyoming. And I think most people only came after my daughter was born. I think that's when we actually had like, okay, people that would actually say, oh, I'm coming to come and see you guys. It was only when my, when, when my wife was pregnant and my daughter was born. Even to get like Nigerian food stuff, right, to cook. So I'd always have to like plan a trip to Denver to try and find the African store in Denver. Denver was a six and a half hour drive. There was like one place and they didn't have much, but that was where everybody went to. And so either I came to Houston to grab stuff or I drive down to Denver, but yeah. He talks about the Skype call that brought him and his wife together. I met my wife through my roommate in college. They were friends. And I remember, I think it was like the end of like the quarter or something like that. Matter of fact, I think it was just been right after I graduated my first degree. And I remember coming to his room and we're like, all hype is like, oh, the quarter is over. Let's go get drunk. Let's get drinks. And he's like sitting there talking on Skype, right? And they were, they were talking on Skype. And I'm just like, guy, we have things to do, man. What's this one that you're doing there just did? And then I see her and I'm like, oh, uh, guy, I thought, who's this? Uh, who's this shoddy you're talking to, right? And so and then I just like kick him off his computer and I take his computer and I go just have this whole conversation with this woman. And she's probably thinking like, who is this person? Why is he yelling? Why is he taking the computer away? What the hell, right? And that was our, our first true internet love. <laughs> I would tell people like, we met over Skype. And so after that, we didn't date for almost a year, year and a half after that, but we made and, and we'd had, we had a good relationship and a talk and on some of my long drives back from Houston, you know, I'd call her and she'd stay on the phone with me and then we'll talk and talk. And then he went to the good morning, beautiful text messages. And then all of a sudden, you know, things are happening and wanting, wanting, and then we started dating. So my daughter was definitely not planned. We weren't even married at the time um, before we had her. But, you know, she was born in, in, in 2012. That was definitely one of the most humbling experiences in life. And it's also just knowing that I'm responsible for this whole other person and making sure that you get the best out of life. It definitely changed my perspective. And and like I said, we had our daughter young, right? So we were both in our mid-20s at the time. None of our friends were thinking about like serious relationship at the time. Everybody was just flexing out in the world and, you know, seeing what was going on in the streets. And here we were with like a child and even our friends now. One of our only friends that came to visit us in Wyoming after my daughter was born we're just on the naming ceremony for her second kid, right? That it just had. And that was just happening today. And so just talking about it just makes me think about how long we've been in this game of like being adults and parents. And so there's two things that has happened, right? So it's accelerated our development as, as people and our life experiences. And then for my daughter, what it's done for her is she spent her life around adults most of her life. So the way she views life and her perspective on life is different right because she's always been around adults and we didn't have the lots of other kids that she could go play with actually we didn't really get a friend group that had kids that were close to her age till like we moved back to houston and we had been back in houston for a couple of years right so for the for the longest time she was just the only kid in all of the groups and so that in itself presents its own challenges but it's also an experience on its own so when i say i have like the experience of like a 30 plus 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 person that's why because most of the people that i know that have kids 
around my daughter's age are like 40 plus, right? And, and so sometimes it's a little weird, but it's like all my friends are just getting married or just having kids. And so my daughter is going to be like ready to start babysitting all these little kids at that time, right? Because we're just so far ahead of the game. One very bright September morning, um, we woke up in beautiful Casper, Wyoming, and we had three feet of snow. And even the trees were still green, right? So normally we don't start getting snow till like November, maybe December, and then you get the worst in January, February. September, three feet of snow, power lines were knocked out. The only heat that we had was from our gas cooker um, because there was no electricity. My wife, we weren't married then by the time. But she looked at me and said, I'm going to fuck out of here. So you can either stay here by yourself or you can come with us, but I'm going to fuck out of here. And so I went to my boss and I said, hey, so here's the deal, right? I need to get back to Houston and I love you guys as a company, but I love my wife more than I do, uh, you guys. And so I'm going to be back in Houston at the end of the year with or without you. So we can either make this work or say go be right. We'll see. And so was able to work out something to get a transfer to a different role um, in Houston. And so that's how we moved back to Houston. I've already cut it close a lot with this job that I've been doing with you guys. And I really like her. And I don't like you guys as much. So let's make this work. So I'll tell you a funny story. The day my daughter was born, I took off work. I'm like, hey, I have to take off work because, you know, my wife's going to be going into labor anytime soon. So I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm taking off. They call in and they're like, hey, we need someone to go down to Colorado to go run this job. We don't have anybody else. Everybody else is out. Everybody that was on job, we need to go. We can't turn this to work down. And so what we'll do is you go, but the second we get somebody else off a job, we're going to get them to come replace you. So I get in my truck, drive down to Brighton, Colorado, which is, again, like six hours from where I am. Go on this rig, do what I need to do. I'm running this job. I guess someone that calls me is like, hey, I just got off this rig. I'm done. I'm going to come replace you, right? So he comes in. So I work overnight, 24 hours, and he comes in, replaces me. I jump in my truck, drive back home, right? So I've worked like probably about 24 hours, right? But I'm like, fuck it, I need to get home. So I'm driving home. The mountain, because Casper has like, a, there's like actually a mountain there and stuff. The mountain is on fire because there was a wildfire going on. So you can see the smoke and stuff. Like the city is down, but the mountain is up. So you can see the fire on the mountain, you can see the smoke, you can see whatever. And it wasn't going to hit the city or anything like that. So I remember driving, I was looking at the orange blossoms. I'm like, oh man, this is crazy, right? This is wild. It's like a forest fire there. And I get home, I probably go home like around 1030. So I get home, go and drive, exhausted, right? I'm like, hey, I'm about to go to bed. It wasn't an hour later. She's like, uncle, the water has broken. Time to go. And so we like, we get the go bag and everything and we drive down to the hospital and then we're in there and I think like 12 hours later, um, eventually after like emergency C-section and all this other stuff and now this baby's here, right? Didn't think nothing of it at first. And then it hit me. I was like, if I had stayed on that job another hour, another two hours, whatever it is, I would have had a comb to come back to right? Because I cannot imagine how I would make up for not being there for the birth of my child. And then I talked to my boss and he's like, oh yeah, I was never there for any of my children's birth, right? It's like, you know, the last one, my wife just drove herself to the hospital and just had the baby. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want this for me. 
at all. And so that was one of those moments that I'm like, you know what, whatever it is, family comes first. I'm not going to put any job over my family, right? And so ever since that day, I was like, I cut it close. I made it up by the skinny on my chin chin chin. And uh, yeah, we're not going to do that shit again. When she said, uh, I'm going to be in Houston with or without you, I was like, no, Ted, yes, ma'am. I'll be right there with you. I asked him to tell me about his experiences working on oil rigs. Oh, it fucking sucked. It was miserable as shit, depending on where you were, right? So sometimes we were close enough to a city where we could go to a hotel to go spend the night. A lot of times you'd have to sleep in a cabin if they had space. A lot of times I just slept in my truck, like a F-250 truck. Yeah. So it's like a, like a pickup truck. So it's not like it's like a big cab or anything like that. It was literally you push your seat all the way back, <laughs> relax it as much as you go. And, and, you know, you do what you do. There definitely wasn't Wi-Fi. Um, phone service was eh. So I always had, I had, had Verizon. I had AT&T, depending on where you were. None of them worked. Luckily, I had like my tablet. So I could always try, like, try to download stuff at the time. But again, right, this is still early, early, early days of like the iPads and stuff like that. So we couldn't watch movies on our work computer. So you couldn't download a lot of stuff. So you either had to take your own personal computer, but then if you didn't have the internet and then you had to use, it was miserable as shit, right? But it was better than like being offshore. So I never worked offshore. All my job was North America land. My friends that worked offshore, the first thing that you do to go offshore is you have to do this like safety stuff, right? And I don't know if you've heard of this, but part of the training is like they um, strap you in a helicopter and then it's in a pool, right? So you're in like a pool area. So they put you in the frame, they strap you, they flip it and then they dump you in the pool. All right. You have to get out of the harness and stuff and all that. It's just part of the safety training. And the first time I was like, they put you in a helicopter, they put you in the pool and it's upside down and you have to get out. No, thank you. I will not be going offshore. And that was the end of it. Right. And the people that do it say, oh, no, it's not a big deal. Nah, fuck that. What they're telling you is you need to know how to get yourself out of a helicopter if he crashes in the middle of the goddamn ocean. Yeah, not for me. I like my feet on the solid ground. I like being able to get in my truck. I like being able to drive wherever I go. I don't want to get on a slow boat. I didn't want to do a barge. Not for me. No, thank you. And so I stayed all of my work while I was in the field on that. But it, it was interesting. Um, I've driven to, so I used to cover the Rockies. And so I think the farthest west I went was mm, Utah. So I went Utah, New Mexico, Montana, Colorado a lot, Wyoming. North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska. So I used to like basically cover that entire region. And then sometimes I come down to Oklahoma um, and sometimes Texas, but very rarely. I've driven a lot of miles, a lot of miles, like a lot of miles. I've seen all kinds of stupid shit and been in all kinds of places. But that was one of the things I liked about Wyoming, right? I remember um, my mother-in-law came to visit us and we're like, let's go on a trip. We're going to go to Yellowstone. Woohoo! Yeah, that was a fun trip. And not because it wasn't nice or anything, but, you know, we didn't have cell phone service for like two days. And she's just like, I did not plan for this. Like, I have a business that I'm running in Nigeria. I cannot get to the people on the phone. Like, you people do not tell me this. What is all this? Okay, yes, it's nice and beautiful, but I need to talk to the people in my factory, right? And there's no cell phone signal. And so now we have to drive all the way out of the park to kind of get to a place where you can get. It was just all this weird stuff, right? But yeah, no, we, we got to see places that I never would have 
Sin. So Yellowstone, of course, that was really, really nice. We went to South Dakotas. So we went to Mount Rushmore. So we've seen all of that. Um, We've been to like the Indian Hills. We've been to Devil's Peak in South Dakota. So just like all these different places. I spent a lot of time in Colorado on the west side of Colorado, which is really, really nice. I went on a, on a camping trip there. Which is also my first time I ran into a black bear. And that's the only time I've ever ran into a black bear. And that's the last time I've run into a black bear. And just Utah, um, there's just all these different places that we just would never have gotten to see if we like, weren't up there. And I actually regret that i didn't take advantage of a lot a lot more than i could have right so all the time that like i was running to houston right i could have gone like fly fishing right in some of these places up there that has some of the best fly fishing in the world that people pay a lot of money to go do um i could have gone hunting right which yeah you know some people yeah however you feel but like people pay a lot of money to go hunting right to go hunt elk and moose and all the stuff and so just things like that that at the time my mindset was I don't want to be here. I don't want to have it to do this. Get me out of here. And then now I'm like, oh shit. If I have to go on a hunting trip in Wyoming, I have to pay like how much? I have to pay a thousand dollars for tags because I have an out-of-state license. Ah, things like that. So but yeah, it was it was a really, really interesting. Did snowboarding, went skiing, went snowmobiling, which was a lot of fun. I mean, just all these other experiences that people just won't do. That's how I picked up archery. Um, so I ended up getting a bow. I used to go shoot my bow from time to time. It's just things like that, right? It's like, they're just experiences that you would never get living in a place like Houston. You only live life once, right? So why not try it? So I would try almost anything once. You can say, I've tried it. I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. There's that there, but you've tried it. So would you rather live life saying I experienced it or just, oh, I would never do that because you never know. And I will say that maybe because of a lot of reading that I did when I was young, there were a lot of things that looked like experiences that I wanted to try. And so the only time I knew I was going to get that opportunity was when I was here living this life. And so if I don't take advantage of it, when else would I? So for example, like skydiving. I did that shit when I was younger. Would I go skydiving now? Probably not. Not because I wouldn't want to. It's just like, now I have to think about if something were to go wrong, I have a wife, I have a daughter, I have responsibilities. It's like, yeah, so the liability is a lot higher, right? Versus when I was like young, I was like, fuck, it's just me, right? Let's go, let's go. And so I always try to make it like I try everything at least once. There are some things that I've tried that I've absolutely enjoyed and I will always continue to do. As a matter of fact, I started to indoctrinate my daughter into some of it, right? So for example, like I love snorkeling. There's very few Nigerians that would actually get into the water the stuff from there but then to like go into the water and now you're like swimming with the fishes yeah but like i took my daughter snorkeling for the first time this summer and she absolutely loves it like we're still there like okay you know take it it's like your first time take it she jumps into the ocean and she's just just all over the place right i'm like because that was the one thing that i realized that kept me back for so long was coming from nigeria there's this conservativeness and this shelteredness and this just like of everything that allows you not to live life and i promised myself like i i cannot do that shit right so yeah they're going to do it and enjoy it but you're not going to do it not do because of fear right because last last you cannot beat me but like my bucket list that i haven't done that i will do is i want to go scuba diving with sharks right because i am completely fascinated by sharks and i have i pushed this on my daughter too but that one is my bucket list that i need to go put a pin in that one for now
all these experiences were just like my American experiences. But over the last six years, I spent a lot of time in the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Dubai. I spent a lot of time in China. I spent a lot of time in Thailand. And then when you talk about eating things that are adventurous, the wildest thing I've eaten, I was in South China. And my colleague said, oh, let's go to this seafood restaurant. I love seafood, first of all, right? That's like my thing is seafood. And so we go to this seafood restaurant and it's one of these places where like everything that you're going to eat is like in tanks in front of you, right? So there's all different types of tanks and all different kinds of creatures and then you do all this stuff, right? And so you just pick it up. But the craziest thing that they had were these things called um, sandworms. They look like worms, but they're like ocean things. So they like purge you with salt and then it spits out all the sand and all this stuff. And it's there and then it's cold and then it's and then they 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 quickly like flash fried or it wasn't it wasn't raw for sure but they quickly like do something to it and then you know you just pick it up and you try it and it, it had this weird briny the texture was that that's the weirdest i'll have to show you a picture of it it's it's it was freaking it was something i'll tell you that and then right after that we had this other it was a type of shrimp i think it was it just looked weird as shit. <laughs> but again, I'm the person that I will try anything at least once. And then so I, I, I could try it and I could say, oh, yeah, I can show you pictures of my Instagram of when I ate a fucking sandworm in South China. Would I do that shit again? Probably not. That's probably the weirdest thing that I've eaten. Jide talks about what he's doing now and possible plans for the future. Yeah, so I'm still in oil and gas. I definitely do a lot of international travel more. And then with COVID, I've actually been home for like the last two years, kind of grounded, which has been interesting in itself because like this is the longest that we spend together as a family without me traveling anywhere. So that uh, that in itself has been a new experience, learning how to deal with the relationships and things like that. So but career has been good. Um, definitely branched out into the entrepreneurship a lot more, um, especially over this year. Like our, our businesses have really, really, really taken off, which has been good. Um, so in terms of career, you know, we'll see what the next step. So what the next step in our journey is more likely than not, it'll probably be out of oil and gas just to try something different and try something new. And uh, I don't think I plan to be a tech bro anytime soon, even though I hear that that's where all the money is, but we'll just have to see. And if not, you know, I might decide to quit and sell it all and move to somewhere in, you know, South Pacific and live on a beach and be renting out canoes to tourists and stuff like that. You never know. That was such a fun conversation to have. Even after we finished recording the interview, we just kept talking for probably an hour or so after. And then we were like, damn, we should have recorded this. <laughs> we, you know, it was just really cool. Jide's life experiences are so, are so fun. I think sometimes you come across people that make you think and just make you ask yourself like, hey, why am I not doing this? You know, like what is stopping me? Speaking to GD made me want to try skydiving. I don't know when I'm going to do that, but I think I'm going to do it at some point. I mean, why not? I still don't know about eating alligators. I'm sorry. I would never understand. People keep saying, well, it's not that bad. It tastes like chicken. No. Um, for some reason, that's not the line I'm crossing. Alligators and snakes. I'm never going to eat those. So all the best. If you have eaten snakes, and you're listening to this, I'm judging you. I don't care. I'm actually definitely judging you because I don't think you should be eating those. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed my interview with uh, with Jide. It was, it was really cool. 
Judy has a lovely family. His daughter is so adorable, you know, and they do so many cool things together. You can find Jide on Twitter at Sir Lone Wolf. I'm going to have his Twitter in the description. And you can find him on Instagram. A lot of the pictures from his travels are there. So um, you could definitely see some of the um, interesting stuff he's eaten over time on there. But yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Like I always say, don't forget to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps to get more people on the show. It helps to give more exposure to the show. And um, it also just feels good to see that you're enjoying the stories that have been told. If you haven't done that, it's very easy. Just search for In These Moments on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You're going to have an opportunity to give like a five-star rating. Um, and you can do that there. I appreciate you so much. Um, but yeah, that's the end of this episode. I hope you take care of yourself. I hope you are enjoying your summer. I hope you're enjoying these, you know, this really hot months now. Um, I know everything is like inflation is crazy and everything is crazy expensive. But yeah, find time to enjoy yourself. Um, if you want to try some of the stuff JD has been talking about on the podcast, you might as well do it. Uh, I mean, why not? We had two crazy years. So, you know, it's time to to have fun and do what you have to do. But yeah, thank you so much for listening to this. I'm going to be back with you in two weeks with a new story. Take care of yourself and have a good one. Bye.